And now, live from Level 5 Productions on the island of Milleronia, it's The Larry Miller Show! Good evening, Mr. and Mrs. America, and everyone who loves going to a new doctor. Hi, folks, and welcome back to The Larry Miller Show. I'm Larry Miller, but in a way, aren't we all? Boy, oh boy, it's a nice day here. It's great to be back in the studio here, and with Colonel Jeff and our two doggies, and we're on the mainland now. Uh, we're not on Milleronia, and I'll explain why a little later. But I, I give you a hint. It has something to do with a new doctor. But in any case, all is well, and uh, it's been a beautiful day here. And of course, as you know, as I've said and as I'll say again, that music makes me feel better. It always makes me feel happy. And Colonel Jeff, too. And of course, that's the John McCain Orchestra. And the Neil Simon Dancers, featuring boy tenor Mike Lucking, asking the musical question, I'm a neurotic nut, but you're crazy. And that is a question, by the way. It's a heck of a line. But he's asking, who said that? Wow. I'm a neurotic nut, but you're crazy. And it immediately sounded, and to the colonel too, I immediately said, is that from a movie? And it just sounded like something I'd heard in a movie. And he said, yeah, me too. And, well, he looked it up. And who said it? Neil Simon. The great Neil Simon. And he said it through one of his characters in The Odd Couple, Felix Unger. And, uh, boy, those characters. He was always great with names anyway, Neil Simon. But... uh Holy mackerel, that Oscar Madison and Felix Unger, the two, well, the leads of The Odd Couple. It's a heck of a play. I was in that play, by the way, in eighth or ninth grade in our school. And our school was both junior high and high school, grades 7 through 12. And we put on The Odd Couple in, uh, oh, golly, I can't remember... uh, that I think Mr. Fiore directed it, and uh, oh, I can't remember, but uh, we put it on at the school there in the school auditorium, and that had a stage, and I was one of the poker players. Speed, I think, was my name, and uh, it's a heck of a play, a great play. Neil Simon, and I was in another one of Neil Simon's plays, too called The Dinner Party, and this one was, well, on Broadway at the Music Box Theater. And that was that was a great time. I uh, brought my wife and kids with me, and we stayed at a, an, a... Well, we got an apartment that was really a longer-term apartment deal. It was for, well, for one thing, people who were doing plays in New York. And uh, that was, oh boy... That was a great place. It was a two-bedroom apartment. We had a wonderful time there. And I had a great time 
Good Lord. It was uh, John Lovitz and me together. And we took over from John Ritter and Henry Winkler, who were the stars when the play opened. And what a cast. Len Carey, you Penny Fuller. Oh, Lord. Just a wonderful cast. And I had a great time. And can you imagine that? Well, my first play in New York, and it's on Broadway, and the Music Box Theater, which is a great place, was designed and built by Irving Berlin. And that became his offices, really. And what a beautiful theater. And I think I might have mentioned this before, but I was uh, I flew into New York to do the David Letterman show, and I was very happy. I'd done it a bunch of times, and I was really looking forward to this that one, that next episode, that next one. And I was uh, memorizing all the things I had written and rehearsed, and I took a walk. It was a beautiful late spring day, early summer, and uh, I went down. I walked down to Broadway. I mean, I I don't know why exactly, but I then thought, well, why don't I walk past the old music box and just where I had such a good time, and I was on and where I performed. I was in a play on Broadway, a Neil Simon play, and that's pretty good. And I walked past there and I saw as it was Forty Fourth Street, and as I walked past it, I saw the stage door was open. And the stage manager was there. Oh, boy, I love that guy. Uh, I feel so stupid. I'm bad with the names. Tommy. Tom. And he saw me and smiled, and I saw him and smiled, and we shook hands. I said, well, how do you like this? And he said, it's great to see. What are you doing? And I said, I'm doing the uh, the Letterman show tonight. It was I was taping it tonight. It was By then, it was around, oh, one in the afternoon, I guess. And... He said, boy, that's great. She's good to see you. And we just chatted for another minute. And I said, uh, suddenly I got the idea. I, I thought, hey, wait a minute. I said, are you uh, in production now? He said, no, we're in between. We just cleared the stage and uh, cleaned the place up. And I, I he took me. We, we walked inside. And I walked out onto that great stage in a, in a wonderful theater. And uh, I said to him, hey, would you mind if I just... There was no one there. And I said, would you mind if I just uh, rehearsed my shot for Letterman and just, well, did it out loud and made an entrance myself from, uh, well, stage right, where you come in anyway on the Letterman show. He said, go ahead, do your stuff, have fun. And I ran that shot 10 times, folks. And I would walk out and perform it out loud and I made a mark where I was going to, you know, hit. And uh, that was terrific. Sometimes show business is wonderful. And you know what? It all it ought to be anyway. And I had a great Letterman shot that night. But then I shook hands with Tommy again after that. And I said, he said, what are you doing now? And I said, well, I'm going to walk back to the hotel and get a bite and shower and shave and get ready for for Letterman. And you know what? It was so wonderful to, I'm in a Neil Simon play, and I met Neil Simon. And he, uh, in fact, John suggested me, John Lovitz, because John was taking over uh, when, uh, well, John Ritter and Henry Winkler had had done enough the show. It was a big, it was a hit show. 
on Broadway, and uh, they'd been in it about four months, five months, I guess, and that was enough for them. And John Lovitz was going to uh, take over, and he suggested me to Neil Simon. Neil said, you know, you're going to be in mind for the other part there. And he said, how about Larry Miller? And, well, it's pretty flattering. Neil Simon, God bless him, said, sounds good to me. Let's meet, you know. And uh, he said, bring him in. And I did. I went walked into Neil's office there. The next day, John called me up and said, hey, come on. We'll go meet Neil Simon. And, you know, if he likes you, maybe you'll be in the play. And I did. I went in there, and John was in there, too, in the meeting, and we talked and laughed. And uh, then I, I read some of it with Neil. With the, I think John was reading with me, and Neil was just watching. We read a couple of scenes, and that was fine, too. And then uh, that was it, and we just talked a little more, and it was around 1 or 2 in the afternoon. And speaking of lunch, it was time to go to lunch. And uh, I remember it was so, so funny because John said uh, – to Neil, well, because Neil said, uh, well, all right, well, why don't you go get a bite and then do this, you know, da, 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 nice to meet you. And uh, and John said to Neil, well, d- did he get it? Is he going to do right in front of me? And uh, and Neil said, it was funny. He said, uh, oh, sure, yeah, absolutely. And that was a pretty wonderful walk out of that after shaking hands and John and I Walked out back to uh, back to the car we came in, and uh, that was pretty great. You shake hands, and I said, "Boy, thanks, pal. That's that was a great meeting." And I guess we're going to be on Broadway together. And he <laughs> smiled and said, "Yeah." And we got in the car, and I called my wife immediately, and I just said, uh, "Hey, honey, uh, how do you, you and the kids like to come to New York?" because uh, I'm going to be in a Neil Simon play on Broadway. And she said, what? And I uh, and I told her, so of course she said yes. And what a wonderful time we had. What a lucky good time. And Neil Simon, folks, what a wonderful guy. What a genius. What a great man. And whew, he lived, I think he was 91 when he just passed away a couple of days ago. And, uh, that's someone else you say, God bless you, Neil. You know what? We all still love you and forever here. And you know what? What can you say about John McCain? Senator John McCain? Yes, and Commander John McCain? And th- there's no other word than hero that applies. If you think you know about him, I I don't think you do. Maybe you've learned something in the last few days about uh, all the people who've stood up and said, well, you know, I I may disagree with him on this and that, but he was always such an honest man and such a good uh, American patriot. And folks, this man, and by the way, I was on The Tonight Show with him, and I was going to do a, a bit. I, I was going to do stand-up there. And uh, then I thought of a bit I could do with him because he was going to be on before me, of course. Come on. And and I thought that when I sat down next to him, I, I would do a bit and sort of guide him into it And uh, because he seemed like someone who could do just anything and not re- rehearse it with him before, not tell him before. 
And uh, it was, boy, it was great. It was with Leno, in fact, hosting. And uh, whew, how wonderful. But you know what, folks? To show you something about this man, what a good soul. What a good heart. You know, I was uh, I went to the panel after doing the stand-up. It was a good shot. And I shook hands with Jay. And I shook hands with this great man, John McCain. And he smiled at me. And I started to go into this bit. And uh, now it shows you something, a good lesson about people. He didn't flinch for a second. He didn't say, whoa, what's going on here? And he was just right in with it and started to play with it. And you know what? I couldn't do it. I was looking in his eyes and I thought, this is too good a man to just tease with. He was... He was as happy as a clam to do it. He was, I don't think this man was ever afraid of anything. And uh, and I met his wife, by the way. Oh, Cindy was there. And uh, he had a, a book he was he was selling there. And he, uh, he was in the dressing room, rather in the uh, makeup room, hair and makeup. And uh, because uh, he uh, he had trouble, he couldn't comb his own hair. People have said, well, over the years, some cruel things about him. They said, oh, look, his arms are so funny. He can't even do this with his arms. And, and uh, well, there was a reason for that. When he crash landed in North Vietnam and uh, and was brought to the Hanoi Hilton, as the men called it there, the prisoners, and... He he went on that crash. He broke both his arms and one of his legs, and the Viet Cong picked him up and not gently either. And they took him in to the Hanoi Hilton, and they threw him literally into a cell alone, and with just you know the bamboo bars and and a dirt floor. And never gave him medical help, never gave him a doctor, never gave him a nurse, never gave him any pills, nothing. And both his arms are broken, and one of his legs is broken. And he he never complained. He couldn't talk to the other prisoners. They couldn't talk to him. And, well, something came up then in 1968. He'd been there a while already. And uh, remember, he was there a total of five and a half years. But when it came up that his father, they found out, the Viet Cong found out that his father was a four-star admiral and the head of a whole division. And his grandfather was also a four-star admiral. These are big Navy people. And they found that out. And they decided to let McCain go, John McCain. They decided to just uh, free him and send him back to America. Not to be kind, but just to sort of take it out on him. But he knew, as soon as he was offered that, he knew, first of all, he would never accept it. And he didn't. Because the soldier's way and the sailor's way and the Marine's way was, as prisoners, you only go with the next oldest guy who was there the longest, 
when someone needs to be freed or someone could possibly be freed. And he would never do that anyway because he knew to to go ahead of these others and not be one of them, even though they had to tap alphabet letters just to communicate. And he said no. He didn't do it and he wasn't going to do it. So his jailers, if that's the right word, broke his arms again. Okay? Same arms again. Again. And then just, well, the cherry on top, they hung him up by those arms, by the newly broken and rebroken arms, off the floor and just by those arms and at the wrists. And not for for 10 minutes either, for weeks, a long time. Now, is that... Is that tough enough for you? And he never complained. And he was just in, well, an agony that we can't picture. This man, God bless him, was someone who was never afraid, who was a real hero, not just because of that. He, in the Senate, was known by both Democrats and Republicans as someone who would stand up and make speeches, and vote for what was right, what he said was right. And he would say in his speeches, I'm telling you to do this, all of you, because it's the right thing to do. Didn't matter what it was. And, well, that's quite a guy. And uh, God bless you, John. Uh, Senator, commander, I, I there are a lot of titles, but you know what? I feel like saying, John, God bless you, John, and everyone here still loves you, and that will stay, that will be, they will be loving you forever, and I'm one of them. And by the Larry Miller Store. That's right, folks. It's time to talk about the Larry Miller Store again. I feel almost a little weird going from something so heartfelt, talking about Neil Simon and John McCain. But you know what? That's life. I love them both, and I will forever. And I also love the Larry Miller store. <laughs> and I hope you do, too. And you know what? It, it is a good place, the Larry Miller store, uh, you know, and we have all sorts of great things that I hope you buy and hope you look at. You know what? And by the way, to get to the Larry Miller store, you go. You can go anywhere. You can get it on your computer. You can get it on your iPhone. You can get to anywhere. But go to our website, and we'll get you there. Our website, of course, is uh, LarryMillerPodcast.com. Who's on the mountain? Tom Mix. <laughs> Oh, boy, I had to look down for a second. I thought I hurt myself there. You know what? We will get you to the Larry Miller store. There's a banner there that will say that you click on our website, and we'll get you to the Larry Miller store. So click that banner and uh, go lean back in your lazy boy chair and put a game on 
and take a great nap. You deserve it. Boy, we have some great stuff, too. There's the new, it's the new Larry Miller store. And that's what we've been calling it because, oh, we have so many things here. Not only our great T-shirts, we have three T-shirt designs. One was the LMDS, the Larry Miller Drinking Society. Another one is says, keep calm and Larry on. And with a nice insignia there. And the, th- the third one is, I survived volcano number two, and all I got was this lousy T-shirt. And our newest item that makes this the new Larry Miller store is another terrific T-shirt, the Bat Larry T-shirt. <laughs> Larry. <laughs> And that, my friends, is only one of the reasons why you think of my show and you think class. So you know what? <laughs> and you can you owe that to Colonel Jeff too. So you know what though? It's a, it's a great it's a great place to go. Go to go to the Larry Miller store, the new Larry Miller store, and get yourself something, and get your girlfriend something or your wife something. And that brings me to my. Favorite part of the show, the joke of the week. This is uh, my favorite part of the show. It's wonderful to pass on a joke, a good joke, a great joke, and to keep it living. And I love that. And giving one to you and, oh, Colonel Jeff has jokes and jokes to go. And uh, we both like this one. I think I think you will, too. Uh a fellow goes to the doctor's office, and he's in his 30s, and uh, he says to the doctor, I guess, and he just checks, he gets up and closes the door into the doctor's office so they can just be alone, and he says to the doctor, uh, Doc, I'll be honest with you, I uh, have something I want to address to you, uh, which is sexual. It's about sex, my sex life, and, uh, and the doctor says, yes, go ahead, what, whatever... Uh, Whatever it is, please just tell me. Sit down. The guy sits down and he says, well, I'll be honest. It's not happening. I mean, I, I, I'm I'm, just 36 and my wife is 32 and uh, she doesn't do it for me anymore. And I, and I just, I don't feel anything for her and I'm not excited by her. And I, I don't know what to do. And the doctor holds his hand up and says, uh, you know what? Let's take this step by step and we'll figure out whether we have to do this scientifically or emotionally. And he said, I'll tell you what, make an appointment. You bring her in here next week and the two of you come in. And uh, the guy says, you've got a deal. He makes another appointment. Sure enough, the next time that week, next week, he and his wife come in and the doctor uh, takes them in his examination room. And uh, they're both in there. And the doctor says to his wife right now, uh, ma'am, you know, uh, take your clothes off, please. And she does. And she takes her clothes off and he says, yes, all of them. And she 
takes all her clothes off, and she's per- completely naked. And he nods and goes, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And turn around, please. And she turns around in a full turning and says, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right. Now, uh, come over here with me and uh, lay yourself down on the examination table there and face down. And, mm, all right, and she does that. And he says, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right, now, stand up. And thank you. That was uh, that was a good part of the examination. Please get dressed. And she does, and says, uh, "Now, if you if you don't mind, just wait outside, and I'm going to talk to your husband for a minute." And she does, and she closes the door, and it clicks. And the doctor has a big smile on his face and says to the husband, "The good news is you're in perfect health. Your wife didn't give me an erection either." <laughs> I hope you like that. We thought that was just silly enough. And we got a kick out of it. So remember, if you you like it, pass it on uh, to friends and family. And uh, we'll always be here with them, with a new one every week. And that brings me to my second favorite part of the show, The Poetry Corner. It's good again. I've said it before, but that's a great string quartet. And uh, this is a wonderful poem. It's called Do Not Stand at My Grave and Weep by Mary Elizabeth Fry. And uh, she was an American, lived from 1905 to 2004. And this was a very famous poem. And I'm going to read it to you now. Do not stand at my grave and weep. Do not stand at my grave and weep. I am not there. I do not sleep. I am a thousand winds that blow. I am the diamond glints on snow. I am the sunlight on ripened grain. I am the gentle autumn rain. When you awaken in the morning's hush, I am the swift, uplifting rush of quiet birds in circled flight. I am the soft stars that shine at night. Do not stand at my grave and cry. I am not there. I did not die. Isn't that lovely? By Mary Elizabeth Fry. And as I said, she was an American and uh, lived for almost 100 years, uh, from 1905 to 2004. And this was a very famous poem. Everyone knew it and everyone loved it. But no one even knew she wrote it until the late 1990s. Mary Elizabeth Fry, as far as the Colonel and I knew, didn't write any other poems and wasn't really... Uh, well, she was a housewife and a florist who lived in Baltimore, but she wrote this. And in the late 1990s, when she was, good Lord, almost 100 years old, Mary finally stood up and claimed authorship. And people were, well, they loved the poem. and They didn't know what to what. What do you mean? What? How do we? And, and uh, she was corroborated on this. She was supported 
and upheld by Abigail Van Buren, who stood up for her. And Abigail Van Buren, as you may know, was otherwise known as Dear Abby. So you know what? That is a terrific poem. And thank you, Mary Elizabeth Fry. And I'm awfully glad for all the things we've had that that I've read that uh, make the poetry corner. But this one especially. It's lovely. And so are you, Mary Elizabeth. And that brings me to my third favorite part of the show. The Magic Movie Moment. This is a good one, too. You know what, folks? Uh, sometimes, well, you know this. They have a James Bond festival, and the whole weekend they play James Bond movies. And uh, the past weekend, I saw, well, they had a Clint Eastwood festival. And all of the Clint Eastwood movies, well, not just, oh, the Italian westerns he made, not just he's made so many movies and directed as well. Good Lord, so many of them. But the Dirty Harry movies. They showed those, and the first one was, well, Dirty Harry. And I saw, well, Sudden Impact. There are so many good ones. And one especially that I always liked called The Enforcer from 1976, directed by John Fargo. It was the third Dirty Harry movie, starring, of course, Clint Eastwood and a great cast, Tyne Daly, Harry Guardino, Bradford Dillman, John Mitchum, a, a great cast. And these are wonderful movies, by the way. They get, the, sure, they get a little little broad, a little knuckle-headed sometimes. But you know what? All the more fun considering that. And this, they, oh, the people who are above him in the police department are just cowards, and they're looking to appease these terrorists who... Just, you know, think that we've threatened to blow everyone up and kill everyone. And they get them millions of dollars, two million dollars in cash. And they're going to get that. Sure enough, well, the mayor agrees to it. And then the, the mayor gets kidnapped by these people. And so the real jerks in the police department above, well, everyone above Harry Callahan, Inspector Harry Callahan. That's Clint Eastwood, of course. And... They all give in, and Clint Eastwood and his new partner, Tyne Daly, who was a wonderful actress, by the way, she was, and she was great in this. And they go to the, well, maybe the best-known prison in the world, Alcatraz, which was empty at that point, and that's where these terrorists are hiding up and hiding out, and... They go through everything just to try and get these guys before anything horrible happens and before his superiors just give in and surrender everything, everything that they asked for. And they, they, they're winning. Clint Eastwood and Tyne Daly are getting to these guys. And then at one point, Tyne Daly and Clint are separated by, well, 50 feet, 100 feet, and they're inside the prison in the hallways there where all the cells are. And uh, and boy, she sees, though, 
she's holding the mayor up. And this is, again, a just a, a fat guy we all hate. Good actor. But no one likes him, and he's also someone who can't ever take a stance on anything. And Tyne saves him, saves his life, and she's walking out with him, and she sees her partner, the great Inspector Harry Callahan, is now someone... One of the terrorists is sneaking up and is going to kill him. And she, with complete bravery and complete heroism, Tyne Daly, playing Inspector Katie Moore, sees this, pushes the mayor aside behind a stone wall and screams out, Harry, watch it, Harry! And as Eastwood turns, she fires a shot at the guy and he though turns with a big assault rifle an automatic weapon and he hits her with a big burst several bullets five six seven bullets and she falls outside the cells there out onto the concrete and harry clint eastwood kills the guy and goes running out to his partner He's been getting more and more touched by every time they meet and every time they work together. And he's right. She was terrific. She was really someone who could be a great inspector. And he turns her over and he says, all right, you relax. We're going to get you, get your help here. And she's, no, no, she's, cause she knows. And we know. And Harry knows. She's had it. And she said, don't, don't, don't. Don't worry about me. And she then says something. It's a great line, a quiet line. Get him. Get him. And get the head of of the whole thing. And she then leans back and dies. And Eastwood, Inspector Callahan, Dirty Harry, does that. He goes off and he winds up. The head terrorist grabs the mayor again, and he's taking him up to a tower. And uh, then the guy, the guy, and they can't—he can't walk up those steps. But the guy, the terrorist, goes up all the steps. And Eastwood has a weapon that was demonstrated for them. That's well, it's like a big explosive bazooka thing. And the guy sees it coming. Eastwood picks it up and loads it and and gets you know all the sights set and fires it, and that rocket grenade, that rocket, says to the guy, and the guy, ah, ah, because he knows what's going to happen, and sure enough, that it blows up. Eastwood blows up the whole tower there with that guy in it, and he is no more. And if that's not enough, now the, the helicopter comes, with all the jerk police who have the money, and they're saying, calling out to the terrorist, they don't know what's happened, and they're saying, we have uh, everything you asked for. We have the $2 million. We have a, a car that's going to take you to the airport. We have the plane that you wanted, and everything you asked for, and you're really sickened by it. And that mayor understands that he's been saved and he runs over to you know harry and callahan and says you know oh i can't believe it you did it you see you saved me he doesn't even 
He doesn't even give credit to Katie Moore, who's now dead for saving him. And Eastwood doesn't even answer this this awful man, this rat mayor. And he, he can't understand, and he's, uh, uh, and Eastwood just walks away and goes right back to Inspector Katie Moore, to Tyne Daly, to be with her, and just to guard her in this moment for her, even though she's gone, she's dead, as that helicopter and that voice of his superior is the, the head of all the inspectors is saying, we've given you everything you want. There's no need to hurt people now. And it's just so sickening to hear this man give up so much after Tyne Daly and Clint Eastwood have given so much and really saved the day. That's that's a pretty good magic movie moment for me. The Enforcer from 1976. And you know what? If you're thinking uh, of, well, looking at a Carrie Hall- uh, Harry Callahan movie, a Dirty Harry movie, they're all good and they're all fun. And they all give you what you want. But The Enforcer really tells a story that leaves you shaking your head and and wondering, well, what the hell happened to all of us? I mentioned going to a new doctor before, and that's why I'm on the mainland now. I made an appointment a couple of weeks ago for a dermatologist, a skin doctor that was recommended by a, a clinic a few miles away from here. And, you know, all right, they, they, they like the guy, and that means, well, I like him too. And he's got a practice and here in the area a few miles away. And, all right, so I made the appointment. I go down there. And it's funny because I was going to meet Colonel Jeff in the studio here at Stately Miller Manor. And, well, that's something very important to me and to Colonel Jeff and to you too, I hope. But you know what? I went to this doctor's office. He has his own office slash clinic. And I parked underneath the building there. It's only about 30 spaces. And uh, that's fine, too. And the, uh, you know, the guy who works in the garage there just pointed me to a place. And I said, all right, I couldn't get in the one. He said, no, take two, take two spots. And all right, so I did. And I went... I went there. It's on the uh, first floor, this this clinic, and I walked in, and I intentionally got there early. The appointment was for three forty-five, but I I went. Th- I got there. I walked into that office at three ten on purpose because I, you know, when you go to a new doctor, you probably have to fill out a lot of forms. No one likes to do that, of course, but you you have to. It's a new doctor, and the young woman at the desk there. Said you'll have to fill that out. And I just said, uh, pardon me, uh, first, before I start that, do you have a restroom here in the office I can use? And she just looked over her shoulder and said, you know what? It's busy now. Someone's in there. And I said, oh, okay. Because, well, I I needed a, a bathroom. And she said, she handed me a key. She said, you know what? There's one for the general buildings just outside our door here. And you turn right. 
and it's right there. So use that one. And I said, okay, all right. And well, it's that time of day when you get a little tired anyway, but this is good. This is important. You know, I want to got something. Well, you see, you get bumped, you get whacked or something. You have something that doesn't go away. And well, is that some kind of infection or is that something, God forbid, worse? And so I go outside. It's just right outside the door there. And you turn right and about 10 feet away, there's the there's the bathroom. And it's uh, for men and women. And it has the occupied sign on the door. Uh, and I said, oh, all right. So it's occupied. No, just wait for that. But the waiting turns into five minutes. When someone's in a bathroom more than five minutes, now it's arguable. You don't want to go to that bathroom, but that's all right. That's all right. I'm not a baby. And well, I am a baby, but I mean, I'm not. And I said uh, to myself, all right, I'll wait. Five minutes, six minutes goes by, and I just glanced back through the glass doors at the woman at the counter. It's not happening out here. That there's no noise coming from that bathroom, and he or she inside there is just sitting there and, and not going anywhere. So I went back into the doctor's office there, and I just said, I uh, walked up to the, to the desk again and said, uh, Someone's in there too. Would you mind just check the uh, check your uh, restroom again? And she looked over her shoulder and said, "Yes, someone's still in there." Now these are long times to be in the bathroom, but all right, all right. And she said, "Why don't you start on filling out those forms?" And you already know you've done that before. There's nothing wrong with that, but as I mentioned to Colonel Jeff, and you know this too, it's nearly impossible to fill out forms on a clipboard. You, you you can't do it. It's not a desk. You can't rest it on your arm. You can't hold it with one hand over the top of the clipboard. There's nothing that doesn't... It's still going to look like you wrote it with your foot. It doesn't matter. It's not going to be good handwriting. It's not even your handwriting. And as Colonel Jeff pointed out, and it's true, I've done this and you've done it too. Then you get even slower. You decide, maybe I'll just slow down and make the letters bigger. Why? I don't know. You don't know. We all do it. But when you slow down and make the letters bigger, it gets worse. The printing is not better. It's worse. Okay. So now, and then they have, do you have any of these diseases? They check everything. But I mean, there are 100, 150 in two big columns, and the print is so small on these, you get a disease just reading it. And I so I go through each one with names you don't know. All right, all right, again, okay. And you just you know don't click check any box there. And you go down. Takes you a while, and then you fill out. All right, who do you want to call in case of an emergency? Oh, I don't want to bother someone. Why? You know, can I just get in to see the guy? And now, by the way, it my appointment was for quarter to four. Now, it's a little after four. No one's called me. No one said, hey, okay, come on in. And I'm still, all right, now I finished the forms. And it's seven pages on these forms. Seven mimeographed or copy machined pages. Again, all right, all right. And I finally, I just put them, I didn't even lift the clip back up, by the way, and slide them under there neatly. I just put them back on the clipboard 
and the pen on top and walked it over to the counter. And uh, the same woman says again, all right, you know, fine, thank you. Go sit back down and wait. I do that, and I said to her again, is the bathroom free? No. Okay. Okay. And I sit back down on the couch. Now, I'm not falling apart. I didn't, it's not something where you have to run to another floor and just say, where's the nearest bathroom on this floor? And I sit there, and now by about 4.10, 4.15, now another nurse aide practitioner uh, opens the door, comes out and says, Larry? And there you are. You're fine. You go, Larry, that's me. There we go. All right. And now I said to the, as I'm walking past, is it free now? Yes, it's free now. And I go in to the bathroom there. And, uh, you know, it's funny if people ask, what are you doing? What do you have to do? I have to pee. Is that okay? Should I not do that at a skin doctor's office? But I did and washed up. And then I walked back to the, the nurse practitioner and she walked me into the examination room and uh, has says, have a seat. And then she has to ask me eight or nine questions. But, you know, that's fine. That's It has to be done, I guess. So you're still not meeting the doctor. And I t- so I take out my wallet, phone, car key, and change and put it on a table. God knows what was on that table before I put it on. But then she says she asks a couple of questions, and I say, well, about eight questions. And all right, fine. And she said, all right, you just uh, have a seat on the examination chair, and the doctor will be in shortly. And I didn't say, what is shortly? How Does that mean he's coming right in? Well, no, actually, and you know that anyway. So I sit back down there, and you're kind of tapping your fingers on the arm of the examination chair. And then he comes in. It's about 4.20 now. And all right, all right, okay. And he comes in and uh, looks a little crazed. It's near the end of his day, I guess, too. And he comes in and says, Sorry, we're a little behind today. And uh, he's one of those people, folks, who speaks so quickly you can't understand a word he says. I don't mean he didn't he didn't have an accent or anything, but I mean so fast that you really want to say I every every you know a paragraph he reads, not even reads that he just recites. He said, "Do you understand?" And I and I would just say. No, because I didn't. I couldn't. I said I couldn't hear what you were saying. It was little, little fast there. And he said, uh, "I, uh, I'm fast." People, everyone tells me that. And I didn't. I didn't say, "Well, you want to take that hint?" But I said, "All right." And he keeps going and going and describing things. He described an illness that, and how it goes through the skin and comes up from somewhere in the stomach but goes into your face or something. I didn't even know what he was saying. And I, what, what? And that was another time he said, and that was a while. That took about six, seven minutes. And he, and then I said, he said to me, do you understand that? And I said, no, I still don't understand. I can't hear you speak. And he said, oh, is this a condition you have uh, about uh, about with hearing? And I said, no. I have no hearing condition. Just keep going. 
And he says, you know, he wanted to take a, a sample from something on my head and do, a, well, a test on it. So he says, I'll be right back. And he leaves. Now, of course, that's a 15-minute leave for him. Then the other nurse comes in to ask a few more questions for the little computer book that she's going to write things down on. And I, she said, did you want to read this form on the computer? I said, do I have to? Should I just sign it? Tell me what to do. Let's, let's get going here. Because now, folks, it's 5 o'clock. And she said, said, okay, and I just signed it with my fingernail because as you knew with, yeah, you know this, with computers, whether it's a supermarket now or anything else, they don't have computer pens. They don't need them. You, you sign it with your finger, which is not readable. I wouldn't recognize it. It's my own finger. And I know my name. And I do that and the doctor comes in now after 15 more minutes and says, uh, you know, all right. And, you know, I'm, I've about had it here now. And, uh, I've been in this place almost two hours. All right. And he said, uh, now I'm going to take a sample here and, uh, we'll do a biopsy. Make sure it's not this, not that. Okay. And this case said it's going to take about two weeks to, to get the results back. He said, that's a little long. And I said, it's fine. It's fine. Can you imagine that? This is about my health. And I'm just saying, let's just go. Come on. But I didn't put it that way. But my whole manner was, oh, come on. And he gave me a list, again, of things to to buy, to take a new kind of shampoo. That, by the way, it's like Selsun Blue or something, you know, that. And uh, he said, uh, on really really put a lot of this shampoo on. And I said, well, you know, I'm bald. I don't have a lot of hair. And he says, you know, that's fine. <laughs> Which I just said, I know it's fine, but I mean, do I need the shampoo? He said, yes, all over, even when there's no hair. Okay. And he's not explaining the only things I want explained. All right. And I take that. Now, I one more time, he says, yeah. Do you understand? And one more time, I said, no, but let's just close up shop and I'll make another appointment for two weeks. I go out the same thing. They don't validate the parking. All right. Okay. And I do that. I say goodbye. And by the way, I was in the office so long, I had to pee again. So I just walked in. I didn't ask anyone of, is the door open? I just walked around. I saw the door open. Fine. Walked in. Did everything I wanted to do. Washed up. And now, walk out. They don't stamp the ticket. And then the woman behind the... Uh, and they're all young women in their 20s. And said uh, something to me about... Uh, and I said, I'm sorry. I couldn't understand you. She was like him. They're all talking so fast and can't be understood, three times she had to say it's a, she finally slowed down enough and said, it's a $25 co-payment. I said, fine, terrific. And I so gave her the credit card, and I don't even care anymore that, do I look like an idiot who can't understand them when they speak? I don't care. And I finally I walked up, goodbye, 
Congratulations, got a date. She said, do you want me to write down the date? No, just, you know, send it to me on uh, the kind of email or a text thing, all right? Okay. I walk out of that office. I was never so glad to leave an office, and I walked out of there, let out a breath, and and I, all right. Then I walked around back to the parking lot, which wasn't far, 50 feet or so, and I get back into my car. And, you know, I'm just looking around. There's no one in there now, because now it's 520. And all the cars are gone, and I pulled out. Obviously, you're looking. There's a couple of guys walk out with a window pane, and of course, I'm going to let them go. I'm not, I'm not that stupid. I, and they go, and uh, I pull out and pull up to the booth, then, and hand my parking ticket over to the guy in the booth, and he says, All "Right, it's fourteen dollars. Fine. Is that a lot? I, I don't even care anymore." And I give him the $14. And he hands me the change and uh, lifts the bar, which is, as you know, the way you get out of these places. And as I'm starting to move forward, he looks at me and smiles and says, God bless you. And I stopped the car. It was only going one mile an hour. And I just stopped it and looked back at him. And he was smiling at me. And I said, I finally let a breath out, and I said to him, what a nice thing to say. And he smiled again, and I said, you know what? God bless you, too. And now we had a bigger smile, and uh, he nodded and smiled, and I nodded and smiled. And uh, and that was it. And as I, wa- as I drove out of that, past the little gate there and back out onto the street, I'm, I smiled to myself and thought, a nice way to end a doctor's appointment or any kind of appointment. And folks, that's the theme of that story, that no matter what goes on, you know what? All right, you did what you had to do. You did what you were supposed to do. And you got another appointment. And you got a bandage on your head from where a sample was taken. All right, it's fine. It's fine. Now I'm going to go back to Stately Miller Manor and and I'll have just enough time. I'll wash up and I think you should always really wash well after you leave a doctor's office. And uh, there was a chance to, uh, my wife hadn't made anything. Uh, I got back there about, oh, let's see, 5.40. And the colonel was going to be here at 6. And I said, oh, honey, it's fine. It's just good to be home, and uh, I smiled at her, and she smiled at me, and the doggies were good, and they're jumping on me, and I did. I washed up. I made myself, oh, quick little bite of a little leftovers, just put it in the microwave, and I was never so happy with a meal just because that fella had said, God bless you, with a smile and an accent, and I, I thought to myself, get a load of you. You've just really changed your life and mine. And I have a smile and it's time to go home. So, folks, you know what? I knew that then. And you and I know the same things as you know. Homer is Homer and Pluto is a planet. So remember, folks, as always... 
If you walked out of bed today and had a job to go to and a home to come back to and someone there who cares about you, folks, the game's over and you've won. And that's still the best thing I can think of. Be well, and we'll see you here next time.